Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. Uh, before Donald Trump and his three-ring circus came to um, came to Washington, came to town, and um, has been assaulting democracy and entertaining everybody sort of ever since, there were actually some real issues in the election campaign. In fact, there was one major overriding issue, which seems to have gotten completely lost in all this bizarre, strange, dangerous stuff that's been going on the last couple of months. We have a guest on today uh, to talk about this, and uh, we will just uh, introduce him. Les Leopold is with us. Hiya. Hey, Mike. How are you? Okay. How you doing? Hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, let me introduce you to people, and then we can uh, 
talk a little bit about what's going on, although <clears throat> obviously the news this week, it seems to swallow everything else, but we have to remember what it was actually going on during the campaign and what continues to be important. Uh, Leslie Leopold, after graduating from Oberlin College and Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, Les co-founded the Labor Institute, a nonprofit organization that designs research and educational programs on occupational safety and health, the environment and economics for unions and uh, worker centers and community organizations. In addition to his current book, Runaway Inequality, an activist guide to economic justice. He is also the author of How to Make a Million Dollars an Hour, Why Financial Elites Get Away with Siphoning Off America's Wealth. He is currently helping to build a national uh, education network linking together unions and community groups. All proceeds from his current book go back into this campaign. And later we'll get uh, into how people can uh, join this or contact, uh, contact you about this. <clears throat> First of all, I suppose I should give you the opportunity, if you want to take the opportunity, before we uh, discuss um, the article that you recently wrote on Huffington Post, if you wanted to comment on this uh, latest uh, lurch towards what seems to be almost like uh, fascism or a dictatorship with Comey, any uh, desire to? Well, I guess my perspective on this comes from uh, a comment made to me by this very wise labor leader who passed away seven, eight years ago, Tony Mazzocchi. And uh, he, he had, uh, as a very young man, he had gone, uh, he was in the uh, Army in World War II, and after, he was in Europe during the Battle of the Bulge, and afterwards they, his, his group, his lieutenant, took them to see Buchenwald, the concentration camp. Mm. And what stunned Mazzocchi was the craftsmanship uh, uh, the gates, the ovens, you know, the, the amount of skilled labor that went into building that concentration camp. And uh, his, what really impressed him and what he got us all to think about as well uh, years later is that, you know, people can go either way. Uh, the very average person can go uh, in, in a fascist direction and build concentration camps or build schools or build, you know, uh, hospitals, or build things that will help humanity. It'll, it depends so much on education and organization. Uh, and I, I think I think what we're seeing now is, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a guy with definitely a fascist authoritarian mentality mm -hmm. uh, leading the country in that direction. You know, j he, he just can't believe that his authority shouldn't be supreme over everything. Uh, and, and not all the people, but a lot of people that supported him could, uh, were also people that supported Obama and supported Sanders. And uh, what swings them back and forth is whether or not we can build a uh, powerful alternative educational operation uh, to engage with them. I think that's the Mazaki lesson. Alternative... Uh, alternative to what the current system of the way people learn for the, from their culture from schools. Well, yeah, well, I, I think what's going on uh, now is that um, uh, I think the dominant issue that faces uh, the Western world, in fact, is runaway inequality. The gap between the richest fraction of the one percent and everybody else is, is astronomical and growing, 
And it, uh, it's one thing if everybody was growing together, but that's not what's happening. The people at the top are basically financially strip mining the rest of us. And uh, so people are seeing their lives go stagnant. Uh, their com- communities, once you get outside the very prosperous areas in America, it looks like a depressed economy. You know, I, I sometimes take the train from New York to Pittsburgh, uh, where I have to do a fair amount of work, and uh, it's a long train ride. And it winds through all these little towns in Pennsylvania, and they just look like they've been clobbered, you know, empty factories, you know, some of them trying to be reconverted. It seems like the only going business in a lot of these towns is a hospital. Uh, it just looks depressed. And anybody who's dealing with America's infrastructure knows how it's crumbling. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you are a super elite, you live in a different world. You don't experience our schools. You don't, exper- you don't have to deal with our transportation system. Uh, you know, you have your, your world cut off uh, from the rest of us. And I think people sense that. Uh, and I think that was uh, the dominant driving force in the last campaign. And uh, people gravitated to Bernie Sanders because he offered an alternative vision of that. And, and once it became Trump-Hillary, Hillary became the uh, status quo. I mean, she was defending the status quo. Right. And he was attacking so and, and took advantage of that. So it, it is almost like, a, before we'll, we'll get to the article in a second, um, so it's almost like a, it fits in a historical pattern. When things get really, really bad, when there's superinflation and people don't have jobs and people are starving and they don't know where to turn, they will go to one or two extremes. Like in Germany, it was the Nazis and the communists. Uh, here, I'm not you know, saying this is the same parallel in either case, but we had an extreme in Trump, whatever exactly he represents, but a certain fascist leaning. And then we have... Um, the uh, liberating and uh, very true alternative of Bernie Sanders, who was talking about uh, the uh, income inequality being the root of uh, almost all the rest of the troubles, which brings us to your article, a recent article on Huffington Post, uh, entitled, Obama Shows Why Wall Street Has Two Parties and We Have None. Let me just read the first short paragraph and we can get into it. Just as Donald Trump mortgages the White House to Goldman Sachs, Barack Obama does a Hillary he agrees to take $400,000 from Wall Street to give one speech. Obama will make as much money in one hour as the average American makes in about five years. Um, bef- I, I posted uh, an objection to this kind of uh, uh, what seems to me immoral and sort of uh, elitist behavior. I hate to use this kind of uh, catchwords, but, you know, and a lot of people wrote back to me and said, uh, I, you know, Give the guy a break. He grew up poor. Everybody does it. You know, all the excuses that you hear from people. And this is, this is what, uh, what people look at. This is what people see, and they think of the Democrats, and then forget about it, you know. But anyhow, you, you go on to say that uh, why, is, uh, why is he doing this? I mean, the excuse can't be, like you say, a lack of money. He and his wife have uh, $60 million in book advances, and they have millions in the bank, and he gets a— huge pension as an ex-president. So you say, why take the Wall Street cash? And why does he? Well, by the way, I got a lot of pushback also. Uh, I, I, I like Obama as a person. Uh, you know, I think he's smart. I think he you know, thinks about things, especially compared to the present. Uh, and, but what he reflected uh, was the way in which 
the Democrats are tone deaf to the elitism, the privilege that they are able to achieve by cozying up with Wall Street and Wall Street elites. So uh, before I answer directly your question, mm-hmm. just, let, let's just paint the picture here. He's taking $400,000 from a Wall Street firm. Uh, he bailed out Wall Street. Right? He was part of that whole process of bailing it out. Uh, none of these folks who violated the law uh, served any time. Uh, none of them lost their jobs. Uh, the banks are bigger now than they were before. Uh, and, and, and yet Obama's self-image is that he was the toughest cop since FDR on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet the Democrats and the Republicans, for uh, the better part of 40 years, were competing with each other to deregulate Wall Street and give, and give them uh, 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 more ability to financially strip mine the rest of us. And, and during that period, Wall Street riches grew astronomically. Uh, uh, compared to everyone else before by the way before that deregulation you didn't earn more money on wall street than you did anywhere else uh, given your level of skill uh education experience you know general motors or uh chase manhattan bank it didn't matter you earned about the same mm-hmm. uh, after that uh, after the deregulation started this the the, the gap between the uh, Wall Street people and the rest of us just grew astronomically. Anyway, so uh, uh, the two parties were competing. And one would have hoped, after all that happened with Hillary and her Wall Street speeches, and how bad that made her look. Oh, terrible. She, you know, she, I, I think it helped cost her the election. I, I do, too. Uh, all because, you know, she, she, you know major, she didn't tell us what she said. She, t- she, took, she also took money when she didn't need it. Uh, the Clintons have made over $100 million since uh, they left the White House. She didn't need another $9 million to make speeches, uh, but she did it. So Obama, in my view, the fundamental thing driving this way down deep is Obama telling the Sanders people, people like you and me, that we're foolish, we're naive, that uh, we don't know how to play the game and that we were absolutely wrong for attacking Hillary about these speeches. See, I'm doing it, too, and I'm even taking more money than her. There's nothing wrong with it. You can be honorable, and you can take money from Wall Street. But, of course, you really Uh, can't be. I mean, you just can't be, right? I I don't think it's possible. I I, I actually don't. Uh, You know, I have to rate, I can tell you just on a minor, minor scale, you know, for the last 35 years, I've had to raise money from uh, philanthropic organizations. And I can tell you, when they give you money, it is an almost impossible to criticize them. You just can't do it uh, uh, because they're giving you money, mm-hmm. and they'll cut you off if you know they'll cut you off if you take them on. So uh, I think the Democrats know. Like, let me give you one of the clearest examples of how soft the Democrats have been on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. There's this thing called the carried interest loophole, which allows hedge fund people to pretend that their uh, billion-dollar operations are about the same as a small restaurant. and well, How does that uh, work? How does that work? Well, it, it allows them to claim that uh, the money that they're making is not income, uh, that most of the money they're making is not income. And so instead of paying 35%, they pay capital gains of 15% or 20% when it went up. Mm-hmm. So the difference between that is like, you know, Five, ten, or more 
billion dollars a year that doesn't go into the Treasury, that goes directly into their pockets. So it, it, after all the, the carnage, that take, all the ripoffs that took place, all the, uh, that led to the crash of 07, 08, it was, uh, everybody was saying that loophole has got to go. So the Democrats had full control of Congress uh, and the White House, and they did not touch that loophole. Hmm. Not never came up for a vote, and that was under uh, Obama, right? I mean, that's I was under Obama. Yeah, uh, there was that period of what was it? Two years? Yeah, they had two couple, years. Yeah. That they, that that's where you know uh, Obamacare got passed, but that's when this could have easily been passed. Uh, and, and and to me, uh, uh, that shows the soft underbelly of you know the Democrats' love affair for Wall Street. You know, the other thing is. Uh, the other thing about Obama that bothered me, I don't know if you recall this, uh, but he started to put a price tag on college education. He wanted to rank colleges. Uh, he did rank colleges based on how much you would earn after you graduated. Hmm. Uh, so he was monetizing college education. Now, you know, I went to a do-gooder school, Overland uh, College, yeah. uh, and, and, and it prided itself uh, producing the most PhDs uh, in the country. Uh, uh, we, we had, like, tons of teachers, social workers, et cetera. And guess what? We don't get nonprofit people like me. We don't get paid much. So, all, so we're like 248th on this scale because we're not putting out, you know, uh, uh, Silicon Valley engineers. I mean, well, why, Wall why, Street. Why, why did he rank the, uh, I mean, what? Because what? I, think, I think he's bought into, well, he was doing that to, you know, to, to get to, uh, the fake schools at the bottom, you know, that, that, that say you can get a degree and we'll get you a great job. He's trying to, like, expose them. Mm-hmm. But I think it's deeper than that. I think Hillary, Obama, the Democratic Party establishment in general, believe that uh, the people that earn a lot of money are worth a lot or, or have value, have a lot of value. So there's a sort of an admiration of the corporate and financial elites. They don't ask the question, where'd that money come from? Uh, I think it's dirty money. They don't ask that question. So, so Hillary went to law school with a lot of the same people that are on Wall Street. She sees herself as peer, as a peer. So they're making, uh, you know, half a million dollars an hour. Why shouldn't she? Mm-hmm. And I think I think Obama has that same thing. You know, I, look, I'm one of the smartest, brightest people in the world. I was a great president. So why shouldn't I uh, make as much as as these guys? And they don't understand what this looks like. You know, to the to the people, the average person who's not uh, necessarily enthralled by Obama's charisma or Hillary's charisma, but actually are trying to understand how the world works. That's what, and it know, just seems incredibly, incredibly unfair. Yeah, and I think I think everybody sees that, and parts of the electorate that uh, that maybe you'd think were weren't that educated. It doesn't necessarily have to be that educated to see uh, how close these people are to the people who uh, are oppressing everybody. I mean, it's a mystery to me that people who could be so intelligent and so, well, maybe it shouldn't be a mystery, that's naive, (laughs) but that they don't see, that they don't understand what this looks like. This is why they lost so many elections and will continue maybe, and lost the last one, and will continue to do it. Well, yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Well, let's Uh, let's wait a second, because I wanted to mention Schumer, uh, because he's right there uh, every second, right? There's Schumer standing there, and... Set aside for a minute his complete lack of charisma, 
his boring presentation. I mean, life is, uh, as Donald Trump has proved, unfortunately, a lot in America, almost everything is how you look and entertainment value. And they've got a leader of the Democratic Party now who is completely uninspiring, who turns people off, who seems like your uh, pedantic uncle with his glasses hanging down there. And um, Schumer himself, and I don't know how many people know this or understand it, or maybe they understand it in their gut, same as Hillary, is, the, is Wall Street's man in Congress. This man has made more money or gotten more campaign contributions from Wall Street than any other senator uh, in living memory. In 2009, uh, I have some notes here, he, uh, he took in 15% by himself of all the money Wall Street sent to anybody mm. in Congress. 15%. And he is, there's a long record of him granting breaks and this break and that break. And uh, I mean, so there's Schumer. I mean, this is uh, continuing along what you just said, the line of what you just said, is they just don't get how it looks to people. They don't see what they're like, you know. All right, and I think, I think there's uh, 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 another dimension to it, which is the people who are the Democratic Party elites actually want to get rich. And expect to get rich. Oh yeah, sure. uh, yeah. So there's this, you know, there, there's this understanding that you can go from politics to Wall Street, like Rahm Emanuel, right? Mm-hmm. Spends a year or two uh, in a Wall Street firm, makes fifteen million dollars for, for putting a couple of deals together. I mean, they just assume that you can go from White House chief of staff to Wall Street, make a lot of money, go back, and that, and and uh, and that somehow everyone's just going to say fine. You know, this is all okay. The Democrats, since Obama was elected, have lost 917 state, local, and federal uh, elected positions. Hmm. They didn't just lose the elections. They had they, they lost the positions, 917. So you would think that would lead to some self-reflection. They are uh, Jamie uh, Galbraith, an economist from the University of Texas, put this really well. He said... A party can't be, the Democrats can't be the party of the predators and the prey. And that's what they're trying to do. They don't get it that Wall Street preys upon the rest of the society. There's a small function of what they do is useful for the economy. Ninety percent or more of what they do is to extract wealth from the rest of us. Uh, and uh, they don't get it. They don't see uh, what the American people see is that it's, you know, Wall Street's out of control and they're predators uh, from uh, you know, virtually every area of life is impacted uh, by that their predator behavior. But you, uh, we saw clearly. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, but you, uh, at the beginning of your article, uh, by the way, we're talking uh, with Les Leopold, who has a very recent article on uh, on um, Huffington Post about uh, Obama makes it look like we have uh, makes it clear in a way that we uh, we the citizens of the United States don't have two parties. Wall Street has two parties. Uh, his spokesperson, I think Eric Schultz's name, has said that compared him to FDR. And uh, you, you addressed this before, but, you know, he said that uh, Obama was responsible for the toughest, uh, you know, reforms uh, on Wall Street since FDR. I mean, does he compare to FDR? I don't think so. And and this it, it, it is one of those, you know... Uh, Eric there didn't 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 think this through because these are the only reforms that have taken place since FDR because FDR's reforms were so strong that there were there were really no financial regulations needed. Uh, they his uh, it lasted FDR's uh, uh, con, uh, 
let me put this, uh, what I think actually happened. They put their foot on the neck of Wall Street. Wall Street was basically uh, held in check because they believed the crash of 29 was caused by Wall Street being out of control. So for all the way from 29 till roughly 1980, uh, Wall Street was under control. There were virtually you know, no financial crises anywhere uh, in the world. And then both parties started, got into the uh, neoliberal deregulatory idea, and they started deregulating Wall Street. They had no idea what that it would even mean. So there were so the Democrats and the Republicans kept deregulating Wall Street all the way up till the crash. So of course Obama, he's the first president after the crash. He, whatever he did was going to be more than what happened in the last uh, right. uh, since FDR. Because a the, first there was nothing needed, and then after that they they were they were dismantling it. So it's it, it's a play on words. Uh, and I think the average American would say, you were tough on Wall Street? Give me a break. Uh, you know, well, like you said, nobody in jail, no right. Glass-Steagall uh, reform, no breaking up of the big banks, no nationalizing of any banks, uh, you know, nobody losing their job on Wall Street because, you know, because of, uh, as punishment. Uh, you know, meanwhile, during the, during the crash, 8 million people lost their jobs almost overnight. <laughs> they got punished. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 he, he was heading in the wrong direction. That, that's not what we ought to be talking about. What we ought to be talking about is runaway inequality. And what I, what I really want to share with you mm-hmm. and to your listeners is uh, I, I've sort of moved from just uh, once Trump was elected, I realized, you know, I can't just be an author, you know, putting my stuff out into the universe. I've got to have to do more. Uh, and so what we've set up is this uh, national educational network uh, called runawayinequality.org educational network. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a website called runawayinequality.org. We're recruiting people from all over the country, and we're training them in how to do workshops and one-on-one conversations and all kinds of things around runaway inequality. We think, as you mentioned in your intro, we think it's the unifying issue and that uh, uh, we're trying to do what the populists did in the 1880s, where they fielded, they were fighting Wall Street at the time, and they fielded 6,000 educators. That's how they built their organization. Now, I don't have any pretense of building a mass movement, because I I don't represent anybody. We have five people at the Labor Institute, not 600,000 like a union would have. Uh, But we can build an educational network. So 6,000 translated today is 30,000. So we're we're trying to recruit and train 30,000 people who want to become educators. And, and uh, I, you know, we started this about six weeks ago, and, in, uh, in, uh, in, oh, about 1,000 people wrote in. Hmm. I answered every email personally. Now we have a little staff that we put together to do it. Uh, and it was interesting what people were saying. You know, I've been, I, I want to contribute. I want to help. Uh, I'm dying to get involved. This is just right for me. I want to do education. I'm retired teacher I want to help. I'm a stay-at-home mom I want to help. It's amazing uh, what, what uh, uh, the, the outpouring uh, that we received. Uh, so we've just begun this, and so I'm putting like a tagline on all my articles saying, hey, if you want to do something about this, write into runawayinequality.org, uh, and we'll figure out how to get you involved. We're going to try to set up train-the-trainer programs around the country. Uh, you know, uh, uh, obviously we encourage people to use the book on runaway inequality, but, you know, not not critical. We have a, a curriculum. We're not trying to sell books, and those that we do sell, the money goes back into the campaign. Uh, 
And uh, we want to see what happens. We've got we, we we've been able to uh, we have very nice projects going. Uh, uh, the Communication Workers of America put up a million dollars to train uh, about seventy of their people to become trainers. Or, you know, we train them to become trainers. They're pulling a thousand of their people out of work, paying them for a day to go through an eight-hour class on runaway inequality. Similar things happening in New Jersey with the New, uh, New Jersey Education Association and a bunch of community groups. Uh, so, in action in New York's doing it, uh, and now we've got it going on uh, uh, nationally. So it, it, I'm going out to the coast uh, in uh, uh, next week uh, to do like uh, five different talks, and and we're doing a train the trainer out there between labor and environmentalists, where we do where we show how runaway inequality is impacting the environment and why we have to get. Uh, we have, you know, an out of control environment. Uh, you know, climate change is out of control, and so is finance, and the two are in, uh, uh, linked. So well, I've kind of gone from in my old age here. I've gone from, you know, peaceful writer, uh, calm, you know, not having to worry about getting up at four o'clock in the morning. And now I wake up at four o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat, saying, "Oh my God, you know, we got we have to get. We have, I have to respond to all these people. We got to get going." So, uh, but you know what? Uh, uh, we have to do this. We have to. We can't let this country just drift away, you know, to, into this uh, authoritarian direction. We have to get out there. Uh, One last comment about this. Yeah. Uh, and then I have a couple of questions. I'll, I'll let you talk on your own show in just a second here. Uh, the 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 uh, in Michigan alone, five hundred thousand people who voted for Obama did not vote for Hillary. Lots of those people voted uh, voted for. Uh, 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 Bernie, so we think that the ed- that that we have to engage. There are two kinds of Trump voters: the xenophobic, racist, you know, uh, right. anti-immigrant. Forget about them. But there are these others that voted for Obama once, twice because they want to change, and then voted for Bernie, and then were so frustrated they either didn't vote or voted for for Trump. That's just or in Neil Stein or something. That's just in Michigan. You're saying five hundred. Well, by the way, it's two hundred and ninety thousand in Pennsylvania and two hundred twenty-two thousand in Wisconsin. So the three states that tipped the election had this phenomenal, this incredible switching going on. We believe that these educational forums are the best safe spaces to engage in dialogue with precisely those people. Half the steelworkers, I do a lot of work with the steelworkers, half the steelworkers voted for Donald Trump. Uh, and and I'm, uh, we've, we've set up a lot of workshops with them, this whole West Coast environmental thing, uh, a third are coming from the steel workers. A third are coming from the communication workers. A third are coming from Sierra Club. Uh, we're we're going to try to have these difficult dialogues, beca- and, and we think educational uh, uh, workshops are a, a great safe space uh, to have it. And so far, uh, I've gotten very little pushback from anybody about this runaway inequality uh, analysis. Uh, and, and anyway, so. No, I, I understand. Let me turn it back over to you. Yeah, well, I was going to have to say about how to do this. Yeah, I was going to ask you who the target audience is, but you just told told us what it was loud and clear. I mean, these are the that 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 those figures you mentioned in those very states you mentioned is extraordinary. I mean, that really would turn the election. And absolutely more about what people don't, you know, what the Democratic Party does not get. I mean, uh, so but uh, when it comes to a question of uh, building an alternative. Uh, political movement in the Democratic Party. I guess you're one of the building blocks. I mean, so your target audience, uh, you're very heavily involved with unions then, right? Well, there's two target audiences. Let me lay out. Uh, there, there, there's progressives in general, and, and, and 
my line is this. The way we start our workshops is I ask people, why did Trump win? Mm-hmm. And then people will tell you, you know, the racism, the sexism, Comey, the Russians, you know, all that kind of stuff comes out. Hillary not being a good candidate. And I say, you know, uh, one other thing to consider. All this is happening on our watch. We've been organizing for decades, and we're now we're going backwards. So maybe we need to reflect on how progressives are organized. So one target audience is we're trying to get progressive organizations and activists to understand that our silo issue by issue, you know, separatist kind of approach is not working. And that what we need is a common analysis, a common organization, a coming together. We instead of just identity politics, we need one more identity. Everyone's got to see themselves as a movement builder, not just as an environmentalist or a labor person or a Black Lives Matter and so on. Not that those issues aren't critically important, but none of us are winning. We can't win separately. Donald Trump is president. Think about that for a second. And uh, climate change is not going to be moved forward under this administration, nor will uh, racial justice issues, nor will uh, labor issues. So it's time to start seeing ourselves as part of a common movement as opposed to fractured. So that's one part of the training. And the other part is to reach those uh, Obama to Sanders to Trump voters. There's sort of two target audiences. Mm. So this common movement, are, are we eventually talking about uh, just dumping the entrenched Democratic Party and forming a whole new party? Uh, I, I, think, I think the way to view this is not uh, is to view it more uh, in terms of uh, a movement organization and not get okay. hung up yet on, on uh, its political manifestation. So uh, when I do these raps, uh, I end with um, uh, four things we need for movement building. One is a common agenda and a, uh, a common analysis. And I think the runaway inequality analysis is very compelling. Mm-hmm. And we're actually putting together uh, a petition that has the common agenda. We're actually field testing it uh, uh, soon. We tried it out in a random sample through SurveyMonkey of uh, 202 people ages 18 to uh, 40 so younger people, and the responses were incredibly positive. So we're going to try to get that out there to test what a common agenda would look like. You know, Bernie sort of had one that was pretty close to what this is, you know, free higher education, universal health care, you know, that kind of stuff, uh, various things to control Wall Street as well. Uh, All right, so, so that's one thing we need. The second thing we need is a common educational infrastructure. So that's my pay grade. I can build that. I can help to build that. That's what I've been doing for 40 years. I kind of know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and lots of other people can, are, are helping and can, you know, lots of people can get involved in that. The third uh, level is building a common organization. So I'd like to be able to go to Patterson or Pensacola or Pomona uh, and walk in to a meeting of people who are dedicated to fighting runaway inequality on a state, local, or national level. I want to be part I would I think there are tens of millions of people that would pay like 25 bucks a year to be part of that kind of organization. Hmm. Uh, where we know we have a, we have a, we know what we're fighting for. We have chapters all over the country uh and 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 we uh in a sense link arms across all our different issues. So that that would be the third thing. That's that's the movement organization I'm talking about. The fourth thing though is is actually the toughest of all. It's in our heads. We have to believe that we can build this. 
we have to believe that we can be movement builders. We have to have that identity of being a movement builder. Not, and that's not, really not just tough. Not just turn away and just utter despair at what's going on, right? Well, either turn away and utter despair or just sink back into our silo and say, you know, I'm fighting on this issue, I'm fighting on that issue, I'm going to just resist. Like, I love this, these indivisible formations all over the country, mm. but they, you know, if you look at the, the, the common denominator is just resist Trump. You know, there's no positive, proactive agenda yet that could change. But people have to believe that they can build a mass democratic movement to take to push the country uh, in the direction in, in, a, in a more fair and just uh, direction. Uh, and, and, and that belief kind of has been lost. You know, we sort of those of us. Oh, yeah, definitely. 60s. If you were in the 60s, movement building was like without any money. People built stuff. I mean, there were these mobilizations against the war of Vietnam that were massive. Uh, you know, uh, structures were being formed all the time. And then, you know, look, at some point, uh, it finds a political expression in the anti-war can- uh, campaigns of, uh, at the presidential level, at the state level, local level. But you don't get a candidate, good candidates until you have a good movement. You just don't, you won't, because they won't stand for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, they're just going to be. I'm better than I'm better than the the, the you know the, the crazy Republicans. Well, speaking. And, well, hold on a second. Speaking of um, of candidates and uh, elections and parties, you have a kind of um, um, unfortunate or uh, sort of alarming uh, political prognostication in your article there, right, about the next election, the presidential yeah, election. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I do. Uh, well, what is that exactly? I, Can you tell? Well, I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to get so tone deaf. And that they'll then and they'll uh, uh, nominate a centrist, mm-hmm. someone who's you know uh, uh, basically you know business friendly, corporate corporate elite friendly, Wall Street friendly, and you know lip service to working people, figuring that minorities and working people have no place. They're not going to stick with Trump because Trump's going to destroy himself. And what I think. What I fear is going to happen is there's going to be a third party, uh, a, thir- a third candidate that's going to emerge out of somewhere. It won't be a Bernie, but it could, it'll be somebody uh, that has, uh, you know, a bit of uh, pizzazz and uh, is able to draw resources like a Ross Perot mm-hmm. did in ni- uh, with Clinton in 92 uh, in, in the Clinton, uh, 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 who was it, Bush? Uh, yeah, a race in uh, 92. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was Bush or not. Anyway, uh, so what you have is uh, uh, Clinton wins with 43% of the vote. I could see Trump winning because Perot got 19%. I could see a third-party candidate getting uh, 20, 22, 18, 22% of the vote. I could see Trump's hardcore support, well, let's say 35, 40%. I could see him you know, becoming a minority president. Mm-hmm. And I think the Dems are not sufficiently worried about that. Uh, they're more. They're, they they still think that um, uh, they can be the party of the predators and party of the prey at the same time, and, uh, and it, they have to change that. They've got you know a couple of years to get their act together, or I think there could be a collapse. Well, I think it's. I think you're watching a collapse right now. I keep coming back to Schumer all the time. Every time he stands <laughs> up, every time that man stands up there and responds to something, which is every day now, my heart sinks that this is the representative that a lot of people think that's the only alternative. So we have to find 
another alternative. Obviously, this uh, educational movement has to be widespread. Uh, well, let me let me ask you uh, a question, which is sort of a cultural question about America. Um, in the article in uh, Huffington Post, you say um, this is in the beginning, near the beginning of the article. You say. Um, Obama will soon be, this is out of context, but Obama will soon be filthy rich. Use that phrase, filthy rich. And um, this goes, in, this goes uh, in tandem with another quote I took, which is something you may be familiar with. It's kind of a famous quote from John Steinbeck. And he said, socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as an exploited proletariat, but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And my point here is that I think that uh, Americans, and maybe this is going back from the be- to the beginning of America or, you know, way back, and it's completely widespread and cultural. I think a lot of people in America um, uh, aspire to be rich. And, you know, you use the word filthy rich here. Yeah, right. That's, I used to hear that all the time from my, uh, from my liberal uh, parents and, uh, you know, my grandparents. But a lot of immigrants came to the United States, you know, a lot of my grand- grandparents' generation, not only just uh, to avoid uh, pogroms and everything and for freedom of speech and democracy, but to make a lot of money. I think a lot of Americans, um, I mean, Americans idolize celebrity and sports figures, uh, all of whom are making so much more now than they ever did that it's obscene. I mean, I pick a figure here out of nowhere, uh, and I'll get, to, <laughs> I'll get to let you talk in a second. In, 19- no, no in 1966, the highest-paid baseball player was Sandy Koufax, who was a great pitcher with the Dodgers, and he was paid $130,000, and obviously inflation figures into this. In uh, this year, 2017, Clayton Kershaw, uh, the Los Angeles dollar, Dodgers, $35.5 million. But if you adjust for inflation, and I'm being sort of a liberal here about that, the highest-paid baseball player uh, would be making about $2.5 million by 66 standards. The point is that uh, when you talk about money being st- strip-bind and going to the top of the, you know, the elites, the financial elites especially, it's not just them. There's a thing in America where people, for instance, this figure I got, about the baseball was on um, uh, Major League Baseball's, uh, you know, online site. Mm-hmm. And it said, Clayton Kershaw is making $35 million a year, and it said, deservedly so. You see my point here, right? I mean, I think a lot of right. Americans don't, don't think in terms of equality. They think socialism. They don't think in terms of, I mean, what would income equality look like to Americans? And let, why let, don't, you know, you see I use the word, let me use the word fairness. Okay. I think, I think there's a general sense people have about what's fair. And if you work hard, you expect to get ahead. And that was the case throughout American history, except for the big depressions and recessions that took place. And it was certainly true from 1945 up till about 1980. Every year, people did a little bit better. And you know, since then, people have actually flatlined and mm. or gone down. Uh, the middle class is getting smaller. So the material basis for the cultural norm that you're talking about is changing. And I, I, there's, there's, evi- there's a fair amount of evidence about that. Uh, let me share two, two interesting, uh, I find interesting. Yeah. When you ask people, uh, uh, if you show them three distributions of wealth, uh, like, you know, what the, what the top... Uh, uh, right. 20%, break it into 
quintiles, and you show one where it's perfectly equal, Americans will reject that. And you show one that's like the United States, they reject that too. And the one that they pick is like Sweden. They want a Swedish distribution of income, which is way more constrained. So we're not, we're not talking about getting rid of wealthy people. There are plenty of wealthy people in the post-World War period. But the gap between the top and, and, and the average worker uh, was the, uh, much, more, uh, much narrower, uh, mm-hmm. way narrower. Like a, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's like 300% higher now than it's, it's uh, According to the figures I have here, uh, this car, the CEO worker to pay ratio for 2016 is 347 to one. Actually, we we have uh, a better way of calculating it. In 1970, it was 40 to one, and now it's 844 to one. It went from 40 to one to 844 to one. Now, let me give you another example. Mm. Americans, uh, when you ask Americans, there's this very interesting poll data. When you ask Americans uh, what they think the gap is now, and they have a clever way of doing it. Uh, they have sort of calculated. Uh, it, it, they think it's about 40 to 60 to 1, which is what it was in 1970. They have no idea how bad it is, but they sense it. If you ask them what they think it ought to be, a strong Republican says 12 to 1. A strong Democrat says 5 to 1 for an average of 7 to 1. Hmm. It's 844 to 1. They think it should be somewhere between 5 and 12 to 1. Now, catch this. We have one public bank in this country the Bank of North Dakota. Right. And uh, people are state employees when they work for the bank, and the profits of the bank go into the state coffers. So they have to set, you know, somebody has to set the pay rates. Uh, pay rates. And they're, they're public. it's public. You can get it. So I called up and found out what it was. The CEO makes 250000 bucks a year, you know, maybe what the cook at Citibank makes or something, mm-hmm. the chauffeur, uh, 250000 a year. The entry-level worker... 35,000 for a ratio of seven to one. Mm-hmm. So in, without looking at any poll data, the people of North Dakota thought seven to one was fair. So, you know, you still look, if you're making seven times more, think about what seven to one or 12 to one means. It means uh, uh, if I'm making 12 what, times what you're making, it means if you can afford a car and a home, I can afford 12 cars and 12 homes. Pretty damn good. But try wrapping your mind around the idea of me being able to afford 844 homes and 844 cars. Mm-hmm. It's ludicrous. Uh, so I think American sense of justice is grading against, yeah, we admire you know, athletes, but you know, if, if you want to dig down into how sports gets all that money, you'll find a lot of strip mining at work. You'll find all these tax breaks that are given to, the, uh, to build these stadiums, all the public money that goes into Without that, you wouldn't have astronomical uh, baseball salaries. Uh, the stadiums are, are more or less uh, publicly supported through tax exemptions and direct uh, uh, contributions. And if you don't give it to, to a team, they move, they'll threaten to move to another, another town. Well, we've seen so, that in you know, New York. There's sort of financial blackmail going on there. Anyway, the point is that uh, uh, we admire certain people. and We feel they've earned it. Wall Street's not earning it. They're taking it. Hmm. It's a different kind of thing. And I think the American people, look, when, when somebody profits by uh, setting up phony credit card accounts and bank accounts, what was going on at Wells Fargo, oh, right. or finding old people and convincing them to get out of their fixed low-interest mortgage and hoodwinking them into an adjustable high-fee mortgage, basically preying on old people 
uh, to, to, to make money, and then uh, and setting up these uh, uh, financial instruments that are designed to fail so you can bet against them and make even more money. This is predatory behavior. That's not uh, Sandy Koufax firing his fastball. Mm-hmm. That's something completely different, and the American people know this. Well, I mean, they I, they need to know it more, and more of them need to know it. I mean, this is obviously why you're doing what you're Amen doing. Amen to that, yes. Because uh, Amen if, to that. if everybody really knew this and acted on their knowledge, then we wouldn't have the kind of leaders, quote-unquote, in government we have. Um, well, you know, I want, I, want to, I want to try to encourage your listeners, go yeah. to runawayinequality.org. This is not a fundraising thing. We're not trying to sell anything. Go to runawayinequality.org. And there's a little sign-up form. If you want to become uh, part of this training network, you just sign up. You'll get information, and uh, we'll we'll help hook people in because we need to get those thirty thousand to do exactly thirty thousand people do exactly what you just said. More people need to understand uh, what's happening to us, uh, you know, so we can build a fair, more just society. And I, I think I think we can do it. We just going to take a lot of work. Okay, Les Leopold, and um, <clears throat> it's called runawayinequality.org, and it is the bottom issue. It is the absolute bottom issue and from which all our troubles uh, flow, and uh, this organization is a kind of place where, from which uh, all of our hopes could probably uh, be realized. But you know, there's a lot to fight against, and uh, so it has to be done every day by as many people as possible. Um, thanks for coming on, and good luck with it all. Thank you. It's uh, my great pleasure. It's great talking to you, as always. Okay, Les. Um, this is Mike Fader, and um, uh, you do worry about America and Americans and the voters. I mean, Donald Trump is a minority president. As long as he keeps everybody entertained, which he showed on The Apprentice and he showed during the campaign, uh, and he shows uh, as president, I mean, he's going to go too far, I believe. I mean, all this stuff. I mean, while he's trying to destroy democracy, uh, he's trying to entertain everybody. He gives, I never saw so many interviews that a person gives. Anyhow, this guy is, um, I think uh, it really is a question. Every time I talk to people who are <coughs> quote unquote liberals or people who are consider themselves liberal Democrats, there's really nobody in the Democratic Party on a national level that you can put your faith in anymore. And people uh, look at this, they look at Trump, and they say um, they're despairing. But uh, people have to, uh, people who voted for him, and as Les was mentioning before, the people who voted for him, not the bigots, not the racists, but the people who voted for him, who uh, bought all his song and dance, which is all bullshit because he's not going to do anything for them. He's just not going to, he's not going to help them at all. And if they gain employment, if there's more jobs for them, it has nothing to do with anything he did. Anyhow, so uh, <clears throat> that's it for this week. Um, we are going to be back next week, and thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to which side are you on? All right. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on?
miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Okay, well, that is it for this week. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, go to my website, FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, and you can uh, comment on the show or any other comments you want to make politically. Fine with me. I'll get back to you, or you can join my mailing list um, and uh, receive various uh, essays that I write or stories that I tell about my life in the city. Um I guess, uh, and I've said this before, there really is uh, a feeling among a lot of people of despair, especially after Bernie Sanders um, took such a hit from the Democratic Party and uh, they submarined him. There's got to be alternatives. There's got to be alternatives. And um, because this man, Trump, is nothing but a fascist and he is well on his way to, uh, I mean, God forbid there's a terrorist attack or even one maybe that he and his pals set up, although I don't know if he has enough brains to do it. could be martial law. So we have to, uh, as soon as possible, in any way we could possibly imagine doing it, um, reveal what's going on, resist what's going on. And, uh, and as Les Leopold was saying, maybe there's a way to progressively claim a new movement. And Bernie Sanders kept uh, hitting this one note all the time and it got almost boring. But it is the note. People, a few people are rich and everybody else is poor. The middle class, as you all know and I know, is disappearing. I don't even know if there is a middle class hardly anymore. All right, see you next week.
Devil. 